We are continuing on our foundation series, and we're looking at the doctrine of the Word of God, which is, uh, I think we all can agree, that's a foundational doctrine as we think about the things that underscore what we believe. Uh, hopefully our faith is grounded in the Scriptures, not somewhere else. And to know that the Bible is the Word of God is an important thing. Uh, we've so far have looking at, looked at the doctrine of, of creation as a foundational doctrine for our faith. We've looked at the doctrine of providence, the doctrine of man, who we are, how God has made us, what we're made for, and so on. And then we started looking at the doctrine of the Word of God, and we've looked at what revelation is, and now we're looking at the Scriptures, the Bible, as revelation. And last week, we looked at the Old Testament witness to itself, how the Old Testament saw itself as the Word of God, as authoritative, and so on. There were several things that uh, we saw that uh, in the Old Testament that it, it thought that it was the Word of God, that it would be difficult to look at the Old Testament and come, with an, come up with another conclusion. So, um, and say, so why were we doing that? Well, if we're going to say the Bible is the Word of God, it's important for us to see that the Bible itself thinks it is the Word of God, or, or presents itself as the Word of God. But not only the Old Testament thought that it was the Word of God, the New Testament also thought that the Old Testament was uh, the Word of God. And that's what we begin today. And some of these things got a little technical, but as, as if, you're, if you're patient, and if you stay engaged, you're going to see that as we build up on this, it will uh, be a blessing to you in seeing how the Bible thinks of itself. And then the conclusion, the only logical conclusion available then is either you take the whole thing or you take nothing. Those are the only two possibilities as you look at the Bible as revelation. Either the whole thing is the revelation of God or none of it is the revelation of God because it, it the Bible itself presents itself as the whole thing being the, uh, the word, the revelation of of God. And the reason I say that is because often people, at least in history, people have decided, okay, I'm going to take this part of the Bible, but not that part of the Bible, and so on. And the most famous one in our country is Thomas Jefferson, who literally got a Bible and cut it up and glued the parts that he thought should be part of his Bible. So they have the Jefferson Bible, which is just a, uh, uh, you know, edited version, I guess, according to Jefferson of what should be in the Bible as well. Uh, in our days, the, the, something that uh, is called, uh, it's viewed as a super scholarly work or a group of men is called the Jesus Seminar. And these men are in charge of deciding what Jesus said or he didn't say in the Bible. He li- they literally sit around the, uh, 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 and I say these men, there are women involved as well. They sit around the table and then they talk about what parts of the gospel or Jesus actually said and what he didn't say, and they vote on it. <laughs> and, and, okay, if they're sure that Jesus said, they put a, a, a red star by it. If they're sure Jesus didn't say, they put a black star by it. And then the, there are different shades that they use. Ah, he may have said it, or he didn't say it. And that's really, you can't do that. It's either the whole thing or it's nothing as far as the Bible goes. So it's important for us to think about these things together. Now, throughout the New Testament, the writers quoted the Old Testament to prove the point that they were trying to make. 
when they're teaching doctrine, when they're teaching something about Christ, they're teaching something about life, they would either quote or allude to the Old Testament to say, yes, what I'm saying is true, you, you should do it. Uh, the, remember that the Old Testament was the Bible of the Apostolic Church. As Paul is, goes around preaching the gospel, he's preaching that from the Old Testament uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And when the, the authors of the New Testament quoted the Old Testament, it was considered the final word. There was debate, they would study the, the, the Old Testament, they would come up with a conclusion, and once that was there, that, that was the end of the debate. The Bible says it, we will just follow it, believe it, and so on. Often the quotations of the Old Testament were introduced by the words God says, or the Holy Spirit says, or the Scripture says, or as it, was, it is written, to show the opinion of the, the New Testament writers of what they were dealing with in the Old Testament. Often, you're going to find places where the Old Testament says, David said, and then you come to the New Testament, you have the author of the New Testament quoting that same passage saying, the Holy Spirit said, to acknowledge that those are the words of God. For example, look at the Hebrews. Turn to the book of Hebrews for a second. And look at chapter 1. Look at verse 5. The, uh, the, uh, the author asks, For to which of the angels did he ever say, he, you know, it's properly capitalized here, referring back to God, You are my son today, I have begotten you, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Quoting from Psalm 110, a song of David. And then you go to chapter 3, verse 7. It says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, you, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, and so on. Quoting from Psalm 95, saying what the psalmist said is actually the Holy Spirit saying. Just one more, look at chapter 4, verse 7. Again, he, he, he designates a certain day saying in David, so in chapter 3 he says, the Holy Spirit says that, and then he says saying in David, and then he quotes again Psalm 95. So the New Testament authors believe that what they had in the Old Testament, even though it was man wrote it, people wrote it, human wrote it, eventually uh, it was, uh, ultimately was the word of God that spoke uh, to, to them. And you see that throughout the scriptures as a whole. So the, this, this ample testimony that the apostolic church believed the scriptures to be the word of God is throughout the, the New Testament. The apostles, the writers of the New Testament, believed that the Old Testament was the Word of God. It was their Bible, and that's what they followed. Uh, if you look at Acts 15, there, there's a, this great debate about what it meant to be a Gentile Christian, which end up being just what it means to be a Christian, whether things required, and so on. You have to become fully uh, a, a Jew in order to be a Christian, and so on. And James, the elder, settles the issue by quoting Amos 9. And that, that's it. The, the issue is settled. Here it is what the Bible says. And everyone says, okay, great. 
then we'll go from, from that. That shows the attitude of them to the Bible. Now, there are other passages that show the New Testament attitude. For example, probably the, the classic one is 2 Timothy 3, 16, where Paul, speaking to Timothy, says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So Paul clearly is referring to the Old, uh, at least referring to the Old Testament. All Scripture, all writings is inspired by God. It's, it's God breathed. I used to think that he was only referring to the Old Testament when he talks when he used this this passage because that was the primary Bible. But in the same epistle, he quotes the words of Luke and quotes it, the words from Deuteronomy. And in there, he says, "As the Scriptures say." And then he talks about what Luke says and what Deuteronomy says, equating the scriptures of the Old Testament and the New Testament there. Peter also talks about that when he says in 2 Peter, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own inspiration. It talks about the man of God being moved to write those things. So Peter saw the very words that you have in the Bible as being the words of God, especially the words of the Old Testament, which was the canon that they were working with at the time. Any questions about that? All right, what I want to do next is talk about what Jesus believed concerning the Old Testament and some of the New Testament as well. Uh, the, the Lord Jesus is the most important witness to the Scriptures because He is the final revelation of God, as we've seen already. As the second person of the Trinity and the prophet of all prophets, remember that Moses talked about that prophet that was to come, referring to Jesus Christ, and the New Testament tells us that that prophet is Jesus. What he says is the absolute truth and must be heeded by every professing Christian. His attitude towards Scripture should be ours. Is that do you agree with that statement that Jesus' attitude towards the Scriptures should be our attitude towards the Scriptures as followers of Jesus Christ? Okay. Throughout the Gospel accounts, the Lord Jesus used the entire Old Testament to teach. It is interesting to study the range of the Old Testament narratives used by Jesus. In fact, the Old Testament, all Old Testament history could be recreated just through the teaching of Jesus Christ. Let's say that somehow we lost the Old Testament, or we had the four Gospels. We could piece together a very good outline of the history of the Old Testament just from what Jesus taught. And I think it's a profitable exercise for us to just take a quick look at that. You know, man, that's tiny. Sorry, I didn't know it was going to be that tiny. Can you see it? I can read it. You can read it? All right. Uh, yes. Uh, he, uh, he talks about creation. Genesis 1, that God created male and female. In Genesis 2, he says that the man is to leave, uh, he refers to Genesis 2, saying that the man is to leave the parents and cleave to wife. So right off the bat, in Matthew 19, he quotes from Genesis 1, he quotes from Genesis 2, and that's really important because liberal theology, which is actually uh, very prevalent today, says that Someone wrote Genesis 1, and someone else wrote Genesis 2. And then a third person later on came around and pieced those two accounts together. 
And he says, neither of them were written by Moses. The problem is that Jesus says, Moses said, and then he quotes Genesis 1, and he quotes Genesis 2. So you can see how everything goes together. You either believe in the whole thing, or you really have to toss the whole thing out. He also says in Matthew 23 that the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah cry out against the Pharisees. Talking Now referring back to Genesis, I have Genesis 3 there. No, Genesis 4, right, my notes says 3. Referring back to Genesis 4, so you have creation, you have the fall and the first murder being mentioned by Jesus. Now, why Abel to Zechariah? Why he says that? Is, Abel is clear. That was the first blood, human blood, to be spilt. But why Zechariah? Well, the Hebrew, the Jewish list, the order of books is different than our order of books. The, the, the first century list of books had Genesis as the first book, like we have, but had what, is what we call Second Chronicles as the last book. The same books in between, but the order was different. And in Second Chronicles, the high priest Zechariah is murdered at the alt, uh, holding on to the horns of the altar by those that claim to be the, the uh, emissaries or the voice of God, but weren't, much like the Pharisees. right? So that's why he says, from Abel to Zechariah. And by doing that, he actually acknowledges the entire Jewish canon that was available to them in the time of, to, to, available to, to them in the time of Jesus. He said, these are the books, in essence, that should be in your Old Testament. Are you with me so far? All right. We're going to look at canon, Lord willing, in the first week of November, because we're going to take a four-week break of this series to talk about different uh, men in theology uh, that foreshadowed or had a great impact on the Reformation. Then Jesus in Matthew 24 talks about Noah and the flood. And guess what? He thinks it was a real thing. And it was the whole earth. Now, there's a lot of people now that think that the flood was localized. That it didn't really cover the whole earth and so on. But that would be difficult to believe that and hold Jesus to his own word. He talks about the destruction of Sodom. You see how we're moving through the Old Testament history here, he talks about Lot's wife. He talks about how Abraham saw Jesus' day, referring back to Genesis 22, specifically the sacrifice when, when um, Abraham offered the, um, what did he offer? Isaac offered his son, and then God provided a substitute for, for Isaac. And I think that's what Jesus is referring to when he talks about Abraham seeing my day. It doesn't stop there. Um, talks about uh, Moses and the burning bush. He talks about uh, manna in the wilderness. Moses talked you know, talk about Moses said for you to honor your parents, referring to Exodus chapter 20. The serpent in, in the wilderness. Now, Numbers chapter uh, 21. Talking about David eating the consecrated bread. Remember that as as the disciples are going through the fields and they grab some grain because they're hungry and they, um, in, in, in essence, shift, uh, not shift, sift the grain in their hands and eat them. And the Pharisees, what are you doing? You're working, you're harvesting and processing grain on the Sabbath. 
and Jesus refers back. Remember when David was hungry, there was that bread, and he went and got it, and so on. The point I'm making here is just that he's referring to the history of the Old Testament. Solomon in his glory, referring back to Kings, 1 Kings chapter 4. The Queen of Sheba and Solomon, referring back to 1 Kings chapter 10. Sorry, Adam. I'll, I can send it to you if you want to. Um, Elijah comes to the widow in 1 Kings 17. Uh, Naaman the leper cleansed in 2 Kings 5. Jonah. Go ahead. Am I not? Sorry, I, was, I went back. Okay, Adam, picture, quick. <laughs> All right. Jonah in the fish for three days. John chapter 1. The Ninevites repent after Jonah's preaching. So you can see, we could continue. These are just examples. We can continue and reconstruct the entire Old Testament history as history, as actual events through the teaching of Jesus Christ. That tells us how Jesus saw that. He didn't see them as just allegories to teach us something, uh, though they were meant to teach us something. First Corinthians 10, Corinthians 10 tells us that. But he sees this as real events with theological meaning that were to be believed exactly like they happened. So these examples demonstrate what our Lord thought about the Scriptures. He thought only that he thought, he not, sorry, he not only believed them, but he used them in his own teaching and considered them binding upon the people that he was speaking to. It's interesting that in some of these, these uh, references in the Gospels, he's not talking to Jews, he's talking to Gentiles. He's in the, uh, the in, in entire area in Lebanon, or he's in the, in the uh, Decapolis, which is also a Gentile area. So he didn't think, oh, these words are only for Jews, but they're for anyone who wants to follow me. Any questions before we continue? There is more. Jesus continually pointed to the text with such expressions as it is written. You know, people tend to look at the Sermon Amount, and at Matthew 5 through 7, and they think that Jesus is overturning the Old Testament law because it says, You've, you have heard it said. Remember what I'm talking about? You've heard it said, you shall not murder your brother. You've heard it said, you shall not commit a adultery with your husband, your neighbor's wife, whatever. When you use that expression, you've heard it said, he's not referring to the Old Testament. He's referring to what the teachers of the law were teaching. And when he says, but now I say to you, he's actually reverting back to the original teaching of the Old Testament. And later on, throughout the book of Matthew, he uses the expression, it is written, as the introduction to Old Testament quotations. Jesus himself believed that. And it's important to think about this, the, this phrase or this sentence, it, it is writ, written, because in the original language, it's written in such a way that says, it was written in the past and stands true today as it was written. It's a perfect tense verb that says that there's an action that happened in the past and its effect continue on through all times till God says they're not true anymore. Since God hasn't said that, then we, it, it, it remains established. What did Jesus do when he was tempted by the devil? He didn't say, I rebuke you, Satan. Right? He didn't. That was not his... 
position like some arrogant fried pastors say that we're supposed to say today. What do you do? He quoted the scriptures. The Lord of heaven quoted the scriptures. Uh, turn for a second to Matthew, uh, to Mark, sorry, Mark chapter 7. Jesus there is worried about the religious leader's view of the scriptures. And the scriptures had such a lasting and biting authority that Jesus was concerned that the traditions of man were setting aside God's command. A look at Matthew, sorry, Mark 7, verse 9. Sorry if I can get there. It says, He said to them, all too, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father and mother or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban, that is a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. It says one of the worst things that the Pharisees were doing was grabbing man-made traditions and putting that in place of the scriptures. That is devastating to Jesus because it is in the scriptures that you find about Jesus, not in the word of man. And we could continue more and more. I have ten other ways in which the Lord Jesus shows how much, how highly he thought of the Old Testament, how he thought it was the word of God, but we will uh, stop with that, that line of argument here, uh, trusting that I've presented enough argument to, for you to see how your Lord thought of the Old Testament, what your Lord thought of the Old Testament scriptures. Any comments or questions before we continue? How about the epistles? What do the epistles think about themselves? Right? Do they think, man, this, let me just give you some suggestions, take it or leave it, man, it's, you know, whatever you want to do here. You know, sometimes I think the evangelical church make the apostles more like the. Did the turtle ever have a name, in, or was this dude, in Finding Nemo? Do you know what I'm talking about? In Finding Nemo, there's this turtle that is in the... Crusher. So, you know, whatever, dude. We tend to make a lot of times, evangelicals make the apostles like that. Whatever, dude, whatever you want to do, let me just say a couple words, but take them or not. That's not how the apostles themselves saw their words. They saw what they were writing as the word of God for the people of God to follow and believe and obey. For example, in Colossians chapter 4, verse 16, Paul says, When this letter has been read among you, have it also, re- uh, have it also read in the church of Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from, the, from Laodicea. He says, Don't, this is not just for you. This is for other churches too. Send them there. Have them read it because it's going to be good for them. Grab the one I've sent them and... Uh, read to you as well. This, this letter to the Church of Laodicea is likely what we call Ephesians today. That was likely a circular letter to those churches in the Lycus Valley in, in, in the uh, area where Ephesus was. 
Yeah, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2, he's praising the Thessalonians. He says, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you uh, believers. So what did Paul think about the things you're telling the Thessalonians? This is the word of God. You receive them and you follow them. Again, in 2 Thessalonians, it says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be, he may be ashamed. So was he looking at 2 Thessalonians as just a suggestion or things, things for you to take? No. If you don't believe that's the word of God, you have no standing in the church of God. That's, that was his position there. And, and we can see that in other epistles as well from different authors. The author of Hebrews expected the people who received that letter to obey it. And, and, he, and he said, if you don't obey the things that are in this letter, you're going to go to hell. He wasn't afraid of saying those things there uh, in the book of, of Hebrews. If you don't receive this as the word of God, then your eternal destiny is in question. Any questions or comments before we continue? Uh, Chris. What about it? Um, no. <laughs> because I'm not including everything that could be said, right? I'm giving you examples uh, there. Uh, in First Peter, uh, Peter says that uh, Paul wrote what's profitable, but there's some difficult things there that, uh, uh, what's the word there? Is the equivalent of feeble, he says, feeble-minded people like you, talking to his audience, cannot really handle and, and so on. Any other comments or questions? Yes, Andrew. Seems like one place someone might go to try to contradict what you're saying is when Paul says, in I believe First Corinthians, why well, say to you not of the Lord? Um, I don't know if that's too much off track to just comment briefly on how we should read that. Where he seems to be making a distinction between right. the so and the Lord. We, we know from these passages that he believes what he's saying is authoritative from God, right? So we have to interpret the Bible holistically, right? Uh, we, we believe in what's called the analogy of the scriptures, that scriptures are interpreted, the analogy of faith, as they say, that scriptures are interpreted as the scriptures. And what Paul is doing there in 1 Corinthians 7 um, is, here, I can point to you, to the record that we have of what Jesus said, he's saying this. Now, there are other things that are also true, and I'm saying it, even though you can't find it in the record of what Jesus said, I'm saying it, and it is as authoritative as the things that are found in the record of what Jesus said. So that's what, that's what Paul is saying when he says, not, not, not the Lord, but me saying these things. Is he saying, this is authoritative. You can't find it in the, in the Gospels, but it is from the Lord from God himself, as well as authoritative, and you must follow. That's what he means by that, there. Because we have to be careful that we don't fall into the trap of thinking that whatever is in red in our Bibles is more powerful and authoritative than what's in black. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, that's the word of Christ. And is as, as, as authoritative as any other part there. Does that make sense? All right, I'm going to move on from Scripture as a revelation to 
Scripture as inspired by God. That's our next thing we're going to see and take a look at the definition of Scripture, of inspiration. The, uh, the, the doctrine of inspiration is claims that every word that we find in the Bible is given to us by God, is inspired. Now, the word inspired is unfortunate, but that's what we have, and that's what we're going to continue work because we have 2,000 years of history using that and in books using that. But the word inspired literally means to go in, right? It'd be more appropriate to use the word expired, but that, the connotation is not very good, right? You talk about the milk in your fridge or uh, something like that, because expired means going out. Literally, is the, the, the term in the Bible is breathed out, like we saw in 2 Timothy 3.16. God breathed out. What is a reference to one says that God breathed out, one says all scriptures are breathed out by God. What, what's, what is the image that, the, that Paul, at least in that passage, is giving us? What is it that when it says that God breathed out the word, what is he's referring to? What act? Tilly. Speaking. Speaking, exactly. When you speak, right, there's air coming out, being shaped by a vocal cord. That's the idea of breathing out. And then I think there's also in their minds the idea. Remember what God did to men? He breathed out and breathed into men life. And so that's also, I think, included uh, there. Um, as we think of inspiration, I want you to always associate this doctrine with the text, not the author. Right? It is what we have in the Bible that's inspired, not the men. Not everything that Paul did, thought, or said was inspired. Are you with me so far? Only what is in the Bible. Uh, uh, the, mo- the clearest example of that is Peter, isn't it? where he had to be rebuked by Paul for acting in a way contrary to the scriptures in Galatians chapter 2. So the apostles weren't inspired in their being. The writings that we have preserved for us today were inspired. Are we with me on that? Are you okay with that? Any questions on that? All right. There might be a question there. Well, what if we found another writing of Paul today should we include that in the Bible? Should we have a should we have a binder, you know, loose leaf binder as a Bible so we can put more things there? We're going to cover that when we talk about canon. Okay, so I'm just saying that so that you you can be at rest that we're going to talk when we talk about the canon of the scriptures. All right, any questions so far before we continue? Okay, so I want you to, us to also consider the holistic nature of inspiration. Uh, the inspiration has to do with everything about the life of the person so that he could eventually get to the point where when he wrote, he wrote the exact words that God wanted him to write. So the preparation of the writers, the, the birth and circumstances, the tr- their training, their character, all were part of God preparing them to write his word, their com- conversion, their sanctification, their ministry, their, the circumstances that I wrote that, that led them to write the letter. Now, what, what is the uniform testimony of the epistles in the New Testament of the reasons why the apostles wrote those letters? 
or the writers. What is the one thing that's common to all epistles that caused at that moment the writer to sit down, grab a quill, and start writing? Lewis. Right, so the epistles. We're talking about, in the epistles, what is the in, constant? In problems within the church. Yes, problems. <coughs> Every single epistle in the New Testament was written because of problems, either individual problems or problems in the church. So that, even those problems were orchestrated by God so that at the end, when we had, when the apostles and the writers wrote, we had the very word of God uh, there. Does it make sense to you? So everything governed so that at the end we had... When Paul finished writing Galatians, he didn't say, wow, what did that come from? Those were his words. His flavor was in it. That's why Galatians is different than 1 John because the, the author shows himself through the writing. You can see different styles, different vocabulary, different expressions and so on. But at the end, both of them were the exact words of God when they were done writing. Do you see the, the, the two sides there? Okay. These either... The, oh, sorry, I guess all this was here. I shouldn't get so excited about it. And the, these writers were moved to write, as Peter says in 2 Peter 1.21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word carried along is the word for... Um, a wind carrying a ship so that it can sail properly. Uh, so, uh, if you, uh, I'm not a sail uh, boat person. I did a little bit of windsurfing, but I could only go one direction because I couldn't figure out how to come back. <laughs> so, uh, that didn't last very long. But when you're, if you're a skilled sailor, you can go anywhere you want, right? As long as there is wind, and it would take you anywhere. You might have to zigzag or whatever, and so on, but you, you are in control of the boat. At the same time, you can only go where the wind is taking you or the wind is propelling you, and that's how the Bible talks about the uh, inspiration of the Scriptures. A few things that we have to keep in mind about the inspiration of the Scriptures is that inspiration is both plenary and verbal. Those two words are, are technical words, but it's important to keep in mind they're both plenary and verbal. That is, Plenary, it's full, everything, the entirety of the scriptures is God's word. There isn't things in there that's not. Everything is God's word. And verbal means every word of scripture is also inspired by God. Not just thoughts, but every word is inspired by God. And inspiration only refers to the original languages, right? When we're talking about, our, we have translations in English and they're accurate. If they're accurate, they're we can refer to them as being inspired, but technically the inspiration uh, talks about the, oh, come on, the original languages uh, there. Are you with me so far? Okay, two more things and we should be done, okay? There are some inadequate ways of thinking about inspiration. Now, we think of inspiration as the Bible, uh, the Bible as ordinary inspiration, or the Bible is put on the same level as Shakespeare. Oh, I feel inspired when I read, or Shakespeare is really inspired when he wrote this or that or the other thing. Um, 
the uh, limited inspiration is another way that uh, sometimes we may, we may not say it, but that might be what we believe, that parts of the Bible are inspired while others are not. Now, Karl Barth was a big example of that, and in, in that he said that the locus of inspiration, the place of inspiration is not in the text, but in the reader. Is what you read and speaks to you that dictates whether something is inspired or not. Right? Uh, graded inspiration. Some parts are more inspired than others. That's the view of the Roman Catholic Church. That uh, uh, there are, there, the, uh, what we call Apocrypha, those books are less inspired. They're, they're called deuterocanonical. There's a second canon. They're less inspired. They're still inspired, but less. Whatever that means than the other standard books that we have in our Old Testament there. Dynamic inspiration, the thoughts are inspired, but the words are not, so it doesn't matter what the words are as long as the thoughts are there. Uh, moral inspiration, the Bible is inspired in sections that deal with religion and doctrine, but other sections that deal with science and history, the Bible is not inspired there. Or, also wrongly, dictated inspiration, that somehow the authors were zapped, and, and then everything that God was just dictated. They were like, um, you know, war movies, you have uh, the uh, telegraph and they're coming and the, the guy just reading the thing that's coming through. Some people think of inspiration as that. No, there are parts of the Bible that are like that, right? God said exactly and they wrote that, but a lot of it is not that. And then last, in the last two minutes... I said the Bible, every word is inspired. Not just the thoughts, but every word. And, and the Bible does teach that. For example, in, fa- in Matthew 5.18, Jesus says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot, I, I, this is the ESV, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, the iota is the smallest letter in the um, Greek alphabet. And uh, originally, it would be referring to the Yod, which is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Not even the smallest letter will pass away from the Bible. So Jesus is even going smaller than the word, the very letters that form the words. And then if that's not enough, he says not, the, the, not even the smallest stroke of a pen would pass away. If you were to, we're not going to do that, but if you were to turn to Psalm 119, uh, that's fourth section. You know how Psalm 119 is divided by, by eight? The fourth section is the Dallas portion. It's not about Doctor Who. It's about the fourth letter of the uh, Hebrew alphabet. And you can see that the letter goes, uh, the, there's a vertical piece and a horizontal piece. And the horizontal piece just goes a tiny bit beyond the vertical piece. That's the smallest stroke of a pen. Not even that's going to pass from the, the Word of God. And... Uh, um, in Galatians chapter, um, uh, well, Paul says in, in, in 1 Corinthians 2 that we're not taught by in, in, the, in words, the human words, but we're taught by spiritual words, so the very words. And then lastly, in Galatians 3, Paul makes this whole argument based on the difference between a singular word and a plural word, between seed or seeds. Now, to, there, there are more letters in the original language, but just think about it in, in the English. Paul makes this whole argument where our salvation hangs on an S. 
And that shows how important every word is in the scriptures. All right, any questions or comments? Tilly. Where you said that um, only the original languages. Mm-hmm. And some of the, um, like the New Testament quotes from the Old Testament, mm-hmm. when they're quoting from the Septuagint, does that then, with that quote, We're going to talk a little bit about the text itself a little later, so I will save the extended version of that. But I think the best way of thinking is that when the, whatever the New Testament quotes, that's the best version of the Hebrew that we could ever have. So sometimes, we, so there are several ways to explain that. The Septuagint could be based on a different. Uh, um, the words. No, it's not manuscript. Uh, a different edition, the edition of the Hebrew text and so on. Uh, but whatever it is there is going to be the accurate portrayal, uh, portrayal of the original Hebrew text. Okay, And then we'll talk more about that uh, when we get to the text itself. Any other questions that's not a follow-up on Tilly's question? Chris? So just to clarify, um, you're saying the writers themselves were not inspired, but the word... What they wrote. What they wrote was like no, the words were inspired. Word. Yes, what they wrote is inspired. Okay. All right. Let's pray, and it will be dismissed. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We pray that these things will be helpful to us, that we might grow in our understanding and, and, and faith in you through your word. Uh, we pray that uh, even as we think about the beauty of your word and how you preserve it for us and how you given us your very words that it would drive us to worship you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.